What's going on, everybody? It's me, Mark of Blurred Arcopy. And if you don't know me by now, I'm a cosplay photographer and content creator on YouTube. And today, I'm here to announce that I've started a podcast right here on Anchor. You can join me every week to hear my nerdy guests have nerdy debates and nerdy interviews as we dig into why we are black nerds ourselves. If you're a cosplayer, if you're a photographer, if you're a content creator, if you're somebody who just reads comic books and is interested in this world, join us every week and we'll hopefully enlighten you on the journey. What's going on, everybody? It's me, Mark, and I'm back again with another Blurred Cast podcast. Uh, this will be episode one of the Blurred Cast. So, if you're on the ground floor uh, helping me build up the foundation, this is a treat for you. Today, I'm here joined by my good friend, my good buddy, uh, my guest host of the day. Go ahead and introduce yourself. What's going on, everybody? It's JB versus the world here. I am a writer. YouTuber, podcaster, and you can find me on the interwebs at JB versus the world at YouTube, Facebook, JB versus the world.com. Oh, also Instagram. And you can find me on Twitter on JBV the world because versus was just too long for them. Um, So for those of you who don't know, I've done an interview with JB and I've done another collab with JB before. So he uh, seemed like the perfect fit for my first inaugural podcast episode. So I figured I'd just bring him on. Uh, and, you know, we got good chemistry and we're talking about a really interesting subject that I'm really interested in. Um, today, we're going to talk about the science of bending. And let me tell you why. So, as you know, Netflix is uh, should be coming out with their Avatar live action series. And uh, at this current time, it's, it's a little unknown as how good it's going to be. But to prepare for it, I've been binge watching the last day I've been in the Legend of Korra, and it kind of got me thinking a little about the science of bending in the Avatar universe. Uh, in this podcast, we're going to just theorize and break down each of the four elements and just kind of theorize what bending could be and what the possibilities are. That segues way us into the science of bending, the main topic. So, I want to start, uh, we're going to start with each base element, fire, water, earth, and air, and just talk about the sub-bendings of it and just kind of go from there. Well, I think that fire is one of, well, it's the only one that doesn't have a defensive purpose for starters. Um, easily the most destructive um, <laughs> because it is fire. It's really the only one that's combustible. If I feel like it's the most popular one because of the position it was in the series and, you know, Easy application, easy to use. So let me ask you this. You you just brought up something. You said it doesn't have any defensive purposes at all. Like after watching the series as much as you have and I have, can you honestly say that there's not a single instance of firebending being used for defensive purposes? I mean, I've seen that somebody like use like fire to combat something that was 
on the way. It didn't necessarily stop the impact and slowed it down. Like, you I mean, when we've seen like Aang put up like air bubbles and we've seen earth walls and we've seen like ice blocks being raised up as defensive, uh, defensive shields and blocks against offensive attacks. Fire, you just kind of just have to just put up some fire in front of you and eat it as best you can. I don't agree with that. Um, I can think of a few instances like uh, in book one, there's a... Um, I think that lightning is, it's a loose trend. I see where they made the connection with it, but I think that's a very loose transition from fire to lightning. But lightning, um, usually a finishing move. <laughs> usually one shot and you're done with it. Even in The Legend of Korra, when they use lightning, it's usually the finisher or it Nothing happens in the case of Mako. As far as lightning generation for me, there's a line in the episode Bitter Work where I uh, where Iroh teaches Zuko how to redirect lightning. Or at first he's teaching him how to generate lightning, but he sees that it keeps blowing up in Zuko's face. So he started teaching him how to redirect lightning. And to me, lightning makes sense on a scientific level. Um, and let me explain that. So... As you know, there are four states of matter in the reality we live in. There's solids, liquid, gas, and plasma, creating a positive and negative charge. And you're not manipulating lightning like you would fire, earth, air, or water. You are just its guide, its vessel that it travels through. All you can do is direct it in either direction. And to me, that kind of says that anyone who can split their chi, their inner chakra or whatever into positive and negative energy you can be generate lightning but it's also only exclusively done by firebending firebending is the only bending that we know was like motion based i wouldn't say that uh because i can definitely bring up plenty of examples of water benders being emotional um but i do understand where I mean, you're like coming it powers from. like like it i mean you've seen like examples especially like with katara and when it comes to like her emotions and feats of bendings happen by like you know in the moment but emotions are like fuel for fire benders like the fire that burns within them their passion fuels their bending okay. and state of mind goes into it as well especially in the case of lightning because you have to be able to like have a hold on your emotions to clear your mind to do lightning i agree uh but also in the episode uh but where ang and zuko go off and find the uh the sun warriors there you go that's the name of the episode the sun warriors uh in the sun warriors episode when they go and find the original origin of firebending and it's the dragons ran and shaw and they speak fire of all multiple colors to me, that understood that proves your point that yes, firebending is emotional based to some degree. That firebending is life, it is energy, it is living, it is destructive. But I feel like, as the audience, we might have a skew towards the emotional side of firebending because in the first series or in the Legend of, um, I'm sorry, not the Legend of Core. In The Last Airbender, all firebenders drew their firebending from anger, from destruction, from a place of hate. So you never really get to see what it's like until the end where Aang and Zuko is firebending, they're firebending from different emotional states. So I agree with you there. Another thing I want to add, and I think I've only seen this in The Legend of Korra, firebending has a spiritual bending element where it can, I guess, detect the flow of 
of of chi through your body and your aura state. I want to say season two of The Legend of Korra, where she loses her uh, memories and her connection to Rava, and the fire sages find her washed up on the beach, and they do this fire chakra thing over her to feel her aura. So there's a third application to firebending that doesn't get a lot um, a lot of daylight, if that makes sense. That does. That um, makes perfect sense. Right, but there are other things when if we're breaking down the science of firebending, there are other things that I kind of want to see firebenders do that I think they can do. Um, and I want to uphold one because I have a section for that. But I'm gonna just bring this one up, and it's gonna sound crazy, but technically it should make sense. Firebenders should be able to shoot lasers from their eyes. And before <laughs> hold on, before you cast me off as being crazy, hear me out. Hear me out. So you already, oh, and there's another form of firebending that we didn't even talk about, but I'm going to get into it right now. So we have combustion bending, where they focus their energy through the stem of their forehead and create concussive blasts, right? Right. Okay, so you have lightning generation, which is plasma, ionized plasma being electrically charged, okay? So there's something else we have that, I believe firebenders can do, like I said, is shooting lasers is because what is a laser but concentrated light into a single point, right? Yeah, but that's highly concentrated. Like, that's that's superhuman levels of degree. I don't know if they can generate that. I mean, but we didn't know they can shoot bombs out of their minds until they did it. And I'm like, if a firebender can focus their energy to a center point in their head and shoot a concussive blast out of their third eye or whatever, uh, combustion benders, why not do that but set it at the eyes and shoot lasers or something? Like, we've seen time and time again in the Avatar universe things that weren't possible or shown were were done. Um, I bring up metal bending, for example. They teased that from season one all the way until the end of season two where Toph created metal bending. I mean, but that's, I mean, that's a little bit different though, because metal bending is just, there's really no difference between earth bending and metal bending, except for like metal is just more purified form of earth. Like it's in the material. Well, we're going to get to that because uh, I did a little research, which is I, a spoiler. The reason why I wanted to do this episode with you in particular, um, but we're going to get down to that. But before we get there, let's go ahead and get into water. I feel like we talked a lot about fire. So let's go ahead and get into water. Um, which I still think, hands down, is if not the most OP bending ability because of its sub-bending abilities, the second most OP bending ability. Um, Yeah, I'm going to just jump into it. Um, Water bend is just OP as shit, but it's just super OP. Like, you can heal and blood bend. You can create ice, steam, snow, hail, uh, and you can pull it from virtually anywhere. Virtually anywhere, as long as there's moisture in the air. But obviously, you have to be a excuse me. You have to be a very skilled waterbender to even do that. Right, but even still, like that's a lot of application. Like uh, you said, you can pull water from just anywhere, from out of thin air, and freeze it. Uh, you can trans. I don't want to say transmute. What is the word? Um, Water is so easy to phase shift from solid to liquid to gas. Um, so obviously any 
waterbender could take just regular liquid water, regardless of its temperature, freeze it, and then turn all that frozen ice into steam or, you know, from a block of ice to liquid water to steam and still be able to bend it at all three um, phases. That's crazy. Like, maybe earthbenders can do that too. We'll talk about that. But they seem, they seem like the only element that can do that. And that's already by itself insanely powerful. Like, you have to worry about ice and steam and liquid water. And then, I mean, you can literally get it out the mud and use, you know, mud. <laughs> you don't even have to get out the mud. Like, a waterbender can just bend mud as if they're an earthbender. But, um, so, yeah, if you can control water in just its three natural occurring phases, which is a solid as in ice, a liquid as in just liquid water, and gas as in steam or even mist or fog or clouds, for that matter, um, waterbending is just already OP, but then when you add in something like bloodbending, it just becomes extremely even more OP. Like you can control your opponent's body, you can control your own body and manipulate it through waterbending. We've had a talk about this on your on your podcast, uh, season one of Korra and Amon, the bloodbender, who can do it telepathically, assumingly, uh, right? Yeah. So we had a talk about Oman and just all the crazy things he can do and just like, but if every waterbender can just learn that, even just basic bloodbending, not to the level that Oman and Tarlock could, every waterbender is just dangerous. Like, oh, yeah. they're the most OP nation. And it's, I mean, it's really like not even close. <laughs> no. I mean, fire, no. Like, fire is dangerous because, you know, you don't. It's the only element that you could literally pull out of nowhere aside from air. Like, of course, we air is everywhere, but fire, like, you can generate your own fire. You can generate, like, generate it to, like, degrees, and it's always lethal, and it's wild, and it could do whatever. But the water tribe, like, the northern water tribe literally held up. They held up. They didn't have a massive wall. They didn't have like armies to like hold them fend them and fend themselves and like the land the land itself to defend them they did that themselves and even when they did the fire nation did invade they fought them off a little help from the avatar well yeah but then again, the only reason why the water nation the northern water tribe was even in some dutch in the first place was because they lost their bending because the fire nation invaded and, uh, and commander jow killed the moon spirit that whole hogwash <laughs> Um, well, all right. Ultimately, what I'm saying is, if Zhao didn't do anything with the water spirit and they just fought straight up, they would have fended them off. Until the day came and then the balance of power would have shifted to the firebenders because they did uh, blatantly say that, that, oh, you rise with the moon, but I rise with the sun. And as soon as the sun came out, firebenders got re-energized and was able to be stronger than waterbenders uh, individually at that yeah. point. God, waterbending is so OP. It really needs to have the most limiters on it now that I think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot you can do with waterbending. Um, and just the science behind it, because water isn't anything that needs life, or it, life needs water, so obviously bloodbending and be able to control living organisms makes sense. Uh, if you can control the water in someone's blood you control the water in plants and the water in rooted trees and things like that you could essentially like you said plant bend um 
and do all kind of crazy things. There's even a scene in the Puppet Master where Katara the water from a wooden tree and splinters all the wood everywhere and just uses the water, um, which probably is one of my favorite episodes, the Puppet Master, season three of The uh, Last Airbender. Really good, solid episode from start to finish. Oh, yeah. It's Katara. You're a bloodbender now. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, look at what she did in the Southern Raiders episode where she stopped the rain from falling in a little small area and turned all of it into ice dart shards and just, like, went ham on old dude. I mean, it would dominate. Dominate. And and since we're getting the sub-bendings, I think if a waterbender can bloodbend, what's stopping them from bending dead corpses and necromancing, in a sense? Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. the body would have to be freshly dead and blood would still have to be in it and not congealed. But, yeah, if... You're a waterbending soldier, and your entire platoon dies, and you awaken your water, your bloodbending um, abilities. You can just raise that whole army back up and bloodbend the army to go after your enemies. Like I think that would be kind of cool. I think that would be a little too OP for waterbenders to be able to do stuff like that. But like I said, if water isn't everything, look what they can do bend any liquid it doesn't have to necessarily be water because if it's a liquid there's nine 90 chance some form of water is in it no matter how minuscule yeah i mean that's basically what they've shown in the series as long as there's water somewhere they can pull it Right, Somewhere. and it doesn't even matter how much water and that's another thing that i kind of have with the issue with the series because um, there's plenty of times where Katara's shown just water bending with water from her little water jug. And I'm like, but you knocking 10, 20 people out with just like a drinking water, like 16 ounces of water, you you killing people like with 16 ounces of water. So it can even be very little water. A water bender will always find a way to dominate and survive and get through. Um, and that's just in itself kind of OP. Um, and I kind of hate saying that because I think when we break down air coming up uh, next or in this in the minute when we break down air, I feel like air can be more OP, but because of how the air nomads are, you can't, they won't be OP because of that. But Earth now. Let's talk about Earth. Is powerful but strongest in a fight? Because that's nothing but blunt force coming at you. Usually in projectile form. True. Comes at you. They are not playing. If you pay attention to the if you pay attention to the show, you notice that they give earthbending the most versatility out of any of the elements. Like they do quicksand, dust storms, sand bending, metal bending, lava bending. There's talks and theories of bone and mineral bending, meaning you can bend the earth minerals within your own body like calcium and potassium and things like that iron and bend um you know bones in your enemies like blood benders they bend blood well earth benders can bend bone um magnet bending which is kind of hinted at in legend of coral when varic a water bender creates magnets and you see how advanced metal bending has become over the last 70 years since 
uh, Aang died in, in since the end of Aang series and the beginning of Korra series. With you, I'm gonna be honest with you. Between water, earth, and air, some of the strongest elements. When you add in the science of what it is that they can actually do, so mm-hmm. let's talk about earth uh, subbending abilities like metal and lava. Let's lava. go. I'm gonna let you. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna let lava. you go. Lava is the most broken thing in the series. I don't care. Like we talk about lightning and. And some other stuff. Lava is the most broken crap ever. Literally can just yank it out of nowhere and it's automatically strong, automatically deflective, and you can literally just do whatever. And it's going to eat whatever it touches naturally because that's what lava does. Like, that's it's it's going to burn, it's going to corrode, it's going to do all of that. And it's gaseous. That's so unfair. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what they were thinking about when, when they came up with that, but it is so unfair. A couple of things to say about the gas part of that, but I I want to agree with you to an extent. Yes, lava bending is very destructive. Once you get a little bit, you got a lot. Anything that it touches, it just turns into more lava. Um real way to stop a lava bender is to be also a lava bender or (laughs) apparently the avatar Um, because only like Aang and Roku and Kyoshi in the series both in the novels and the comics have successfully like combated lava bending even though Aang just did it by blowing a lot of air at lava plumes and stuff Um, you don't really see Korra dealing with lava too much it's always just Bolin and Gazan in her series um, but yeah, lava bending is very destructive. Um, I will say lava bending, hands down, is the most destructive uh, bending form there is. Because like I said, once it starts, there's no stopping it. You just have to let it go through its natural progressions. Like we saw Gazan be able to stop it, but it's still like a broken thing. This man took down a whole air bending temple solo. And it didn't take forever. It didn't take like hours. He took down the wall of boxing, say, in one go. True. That is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, now, there was an instance where after Bolin discovered he had lava bending and they met up for their final matchup, where Bolin was able to overpower Gazan with lava bending, uh, with how he used it. And with how Gazan deflected, it made it seem like that he couldn't do anything to stop that flow of lava coming towards him, so he had to evade it. But yeah, it's destructive. Every time they use it, it's just a lot. It's just a lot. Um, And I kind of see why in Aang's series, you only see Avatar's lava bending. In Korra's series, I guess they just had to naturally make that progression that Earthbenders can lava bend. Um, and I'm going to get to my point about lava bending in the last section. Um, but let's switch over to metal bending. Let's talk about metal bending and its applications and everything that it can do. We've seen with metal bending how it can trap, how we can, how they can do um, cords and that kind of thing. And we saw like Toph straight up make armor out of it. And I mean, I'm going to get back to that in a second, but... Also, I want to mention how diamond bending, like crystal bending is a thing with earth bending as well. 
glass bending too. I'm gonna get back to metal for get to metal. Yeah, they had a whole academy for it, and it's still, despite um, the time skip in Korra, it's still one of those things that you have to be a certain level of earthbender to be able to do. That level of it's because them can still the best of them are there in the class of their own. You can still do metal, like still not metal, still regular earthbending at the same time. So there's a versatility there. There's an offensive level there that you just can't get with anything else. Like metal that requires a, a level of bending requires a level of precision that you just can't get with just straight up earth bending. That because of it's more refined and things like that. Um, but in the Legend of Korra, even though they say one out of every hundred earthbenders can metal bend, it still feels like metal bending is something that every earthbender eventually can learn and master unless you lava bend, then you can't metal bend at all. Um, Lynn did tell Bolin that not everybody's got it. True, not everyone has it, and I agree. And that goes to say with any element, you know, you may be able to bend the base element, but it takes skill and practice and mastery to do sub-bending, to do ultimate versions of those sub-bending forms and things like that. Um, one thing I will say, because you brought it up already, but yeah, earthbenders can do a lot. Um, and I may have made a mistake when I said waterbending may be mo more versatile than earthbending, because you're right. If you can, like, what constitute as earth? Let's start there. We already know, like you said, minerals, because we've seen it in the show, mud, dirt, metal, lava, can can regular carbon be manipulated by earthbenders? Because everything has carbon in it. And if earthbenders can bend anything with carbon, that would make them hands down the most OP bender uh, bending element because everything has carbon in it. You and me have carbon. Uh, fire, fire bending, the process of fire itself creates carbon um, with whatever is being burnt as a source. Um, like there's nothing not any bender could do if they can literally just bend carbon. They can bend plastic. They can bend lead. They can bend gold, silver, uh, anything. Thing. Alongside that, uh, so with metal bending came, especially in the Legend of Korra, came the application of magnets. And if you don't know, a magnet in our reality is a ionized piece of iron that, you know, has a north and a south pole. So if iron is the most magnetic substance we have, which means that will be the most magnetic substance they have, a skilled metal bender could also manipulate the magnetic field generated in naturally in magnets or even create a magnetic field. Like how we said if a firebender can separate his chakra because of a negative energy, why can't an earthbender do that and create like, you know, anything that's metal, make it a magnet by doing the same thing that a firebender would do. Um, except, you know, they just make a magnet and it just has polarized north and south fields and then they can just make the magnet more or less intense. Um, as a form of bending, or and I feel like this will what be the ultimate form of earth bending gravity manipulation, and we're going to get into that in this segment wow. when we talk about That's air. But yeah, if an earth bender can manipulate gravity, you didn't mention seismic sense either. 
Let let's talk about the seismic sense. Um, that's cheating. <laughs> Do you think it's cheating? I think it it makes sense. If I'm an earthbender, it makes perfect sense. But it's like I'm just thinking about like application and like offensive application, or just you know anything involving like tactics, strategy, or otherwise, like. Cheating, and I mean that in the best way possible. No, you got like to elaborate a little bit more. What do you mean by how is it cheating? I mean, like, it's fairly unfair. Like, a lay of the land, being there without having close to you or describing things to you, you just, you're able to put your foot down and you're able to, like, sensory, use your senses to map out your surroundings, who's near, who's far, what's where, Etc. Etc. That's 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 a hell of a skill. Hell of a skill. It's, it's dope. It's dope. <laughs> I get where you're coming from, but you know, like we've seen in the show, even with the seismic sense, they have to really focus and kind of dig in to the ground to really get that level of sense that you're speaking of. Um, we see it several times, like in the evasion of uh, the the evasion episodes. In episode two, Toph goes up to the volcano in the Fire Kingdom and literally hits her hand, digging her fingers into the volcano to get a sense of the underground layout. So she had to really focus her energy and power to do that. It's not just like she can just step and like see everything, like how she explained it in season two. True, but we also saw that Aang was able to use seismic sense on Ozai without having to do a stump. And we also saw that Lin in Legend of Korra was able to send a whole underground base miles and miles underneath the ground. Like, I mean, execution might be one thing, but how it's applied and what it's capable of, it's it's fairly unfair. All right, well, in the case of Ozai versus Aang, on the surface, like, if you make any type of vibration, it's going to travel through the ground. So any slight vibration, he would just pick up by just standing there. In the case of Lynn in Legend of Korra, yeah, she did have to do that unholy Bigfoot stomp and then do the seismic sense and then sense all that. But, I, I yeah, it's, it's it, okay, it's cheating. It's cheating. Because if you're an earthbender... And you're going to say the Fire Nation to invade them as soon as you step on the beach. If you're a really good earthbender or solid rock ground, you should be able to pick up where everyone is on the battlefield and immediately go after the enemy. So, okay, I'll give you that. It won't work on airbenders, though. And, um, and it shouldn't work on waterbenders if you're doing waterbending right. Well, it depends where you are. The only weakness to earthbending is not being on the ground. And even with that, depending on what you're on, it's kind of iffy. Well, to that I say, there's a few examples. I can only name like two examples, but there's a few examples where earthbenders have been able to earthbend while not being on the ground. And in the case of Toph, um, who deserves her own episode of this podcast by herself, um, Toph can sense rock in the air and know where it is. True. But I think the only reason why it's such an issue for Toph the way it is when she's had those issues is because she's blind. Issue? I don't think it's an issue. I think it's just people nitpicking because there was a couple of scenes where she's on a boat 
And yeah, the boat is metal, but the boat is on water and another boat is attacking them and they're flinging flaming rocks and she's just knocking the flaming rocks out the air. Um, okay. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's an issue, but I don't know. I feel like that's a bit of a consistency thing because she's shown many times whenever she's not on solid earth, she struggles. That's why she has struggled. She had problems with the desert. Until so, she learned how to stand bend and then she never had an issue with the desert again. I, I wish they would have showed her overcome that. That's a you know minor issue. Well, they did in season three um, in the episode where they was all at the beach before um, the fi- the finale. They're all on the beach and they're having a sand building contest. And Toph is like, "Hey, check out my sand building." She made all the bossing say explicit detail. Yeah, but what I'm saying is they didn't show us overcoming. Say okay. They didn't show us overcoming. Like it's like season two. It's like oh my god, I'm having an issue. Season three is like look at my sand bending. Like that's cool that you've been working on your sand bending. I don't know when you had time to do it, but I'm glad you did it. Also with that, you're on the sand now. Is your vision still fuzzy like it's like it was before, or are you just over it now? That's, that's, what, I'm over it. that's what I'm talking about mainly. And I understand where you're coming from. And to that, I got to say, there's a lot of hand-waving over their training and stuff they can and can't do. Like, when did Aang actually learn the seismic sense? Because we saw Toph teach him earthbending in season two. Then they had the Bossing Say arc where they didn't really show any training, but they show off things that they have done by training. And then in episode three or season three, you know, he's just kind of seismic sensing all over the place. And where he got that from. Now, seismic sense with Aang, that was part of his training with Toph. It was, but we never explicitly saw Toph teaching that to Aang. We heard her explaining it, and we see them training in earthbending, but not particularly in that. True. I think this is one of the things you just kind of just have to accept that that just happened during the, over the course of their training. Right. Over the course of the training. Um, yeah. Because we know that they did. That was definitely a point of conversation several times that he needs to work on his earth earthbending more and that's just teaching him. True. That is true. That is definitely true. Airbending, which I honestly think is not only the most versatile element, but if done correctly, the most OP element. If done correctly, and I wholesale agree with you. Because that's... The reason- Right, and the reason why I say that because as you know, we're all fans of the series. We know air nomads are very peaceful. They are not aggressive people. They don't strike first. They evade and avoid and dodge even in direct combat. So it's hard to say what the true like ultimate or even what other subbendings of airbending could be because an air nomad typically wouldn't use those techniques anyway because it goes against who they are as a people. With that right. said, in the Legend of Korra, we got all these new airbenders, uh, airbenders that popped up out of nowhere after season two who don't have that we're air nomads uh, thinking. And we have, and we were able to see some really powerful, strong airbending put to work. Um, and I'm going to just bring up my main man's here, my favorite villain of the entire. Best, I don't care what you say, his the best villain use 
were dumb. I agree, but he was hands down the best villain because he had an element that a he just got yesterday, but he'd been studying all his life because he just likes air nomads. B, um, he wasn't even a bender; he was just a skilled martial artist. And if we see t- and we've seen this time and time again in the Avatar universe. A non-bender who's a skilled martial artist can go up against almost any bender of bending. So he already was just a martial arts master and then went into, oh, I'm an airbender now and I already been studying this all my life. Bet. Such a he's not a great villain. At it. Like because Tenzin worked him over. <laughs> really worked him over when he got the one v one. Actually, but Tenzin was like, okay, so you just gonna do this? All right, bet. <laughs> Tenzin had mastery, has mastery. I feel like Janora would have worked Zahira over too. True, true. I will say that. Um, because even at that point in the series, Janora definitely has proven to be an airbending master. All she just needed was the tattoos that she got later on at the end of the season. Right. Um, but but like to just go off what you said, seeing Tenzin versus Zahir. A master airbender versus, I don't want to say master airbender, but a master martial artist was yeah. a, like, I want to see more fights with like airbenders and actually not pulling their punches, not being pacifist or whatever. Just give me straight on airbender versus airbender or airbender versus anybody and the airbender is not holding back, not being a regular airbender. Give me an airbender that's not afraid to push the bounds and the limits of what their abilities are. And with that said, let's get into those, uh, what those abilities and uh, powers are. So obviously, can bend air and create large gales of gusts of wind. Uh, They can glide around, create air bubbles. um, And the whole stick of being an airbender is you evade and avoid conflict. With that said... In the Legend of Korra, even at, in, in um, the last Airbender series, you see some applications of airbending that go against what benders do. And on more of that route, just let's go down more of the scientific route of what an airbender can do. And since we are brought them up, is it here? The most violent is ways to die um, by uh, against the bender. Um, asphyxiation. He suffocated the Air Queen to death by literally taking the last breath of air out of her lungs and like creating a vacuum in her own body and suffocating her to death. Um, I feel like if somebody had mastery, you could probably induce a heart attack that way. Like if you're able to create an air pocket in somebody's bloodstream. But also what you didn't mention was the fact that airbenders could create many tornadoes. You can usually, you can literally use airbending to physically augment yourself. Like faster, you can make yourself stronger. You can make yourself quicker. Like you can enhance your own agility. Like just by removing or increasing the air resistance around you, you can literally. Airbenders make themselves stronger. I can see an earthbender doing that to make themselves stronger. But everything else, like I've seen Aang do, he made himself faster by being as fast as the wind. By you know, literally, he's the Flash on on screen. Um, right. He's levitated. He's basically flown while bending the other three elements and, you know, hovering in an air bubble, um, which I'm like, you know, if 
do that? Why is flight such this immaculate thing when any airbender can create a tornado and use that to fly and levitate or like Aang did? You know, to me, flying isn't that immaculate until you break down how he's flying, which we're going to get into that in the later segment. Um, But, you know, I don't think flight is that big a deal when it comes to airbending. There's other stuff I've seen airbenders do. I'm like, I want to see more of that in well, that process. Well, to um, go back to your initial statement, you how you can make yourself stronger as well, speed and agility around it is really just a matter of decreasing air resistance. Like if you able to do that, like on a very subtle level, sub, excuse me, subtle level, wouldn't you be able to increase air resistance behind the throws of your punches? Or rather, decrease the air resistance around the throws of your punches. But would that necessarily make that punch more powerful or make it more quicker? Um, quicker, more impact. To me, if I'm an airbender and I'm not a, you know, oh, I'm an air nomad, I believe in peace and harmony and goodwill amongst mankind, but I'm still an airbender. The first thing I will learn how to do is how to create a void of air. I would literally go around creating vacuums in localized areas. That to me is like a ultimate devastating form of air bending is to evacuate all the air of an area and making it void of air. Like when instantly hitting that pocket of void of air suffocates. Any living thing in this pocket of void of air dies of uh, physics is affected uh, on falling objects in a vacuum. I would do vacuums. And then once I mastered that, I would move on to sound manipulation. Because think about it, bear with me. In physics, sound waves travel through the air. If you can control and manipulate the air, you can control and manipulate sound waves, right? Right. That's and to a lesser extent, you can do that with light waves, too. But let's just stick with sound, because I think that would be a little too OP for an airbender to manipulate light. Um, but it's theoretically possible. Um, but yeah, if I'm an airbender, I'm going to go for vacuums and manipulating sound waves. I'm trying to fly, because I can just fly and glide on anything as an airbender. Um but I want to focus on the more devastating aspects of airbending. Like, look at hurricanes, for example. You can get air to move at 300 miles an hour. You can wipe away an army. You can blow away a city. You can, right. Like, you can blow away land to the white meat. <laughs> and not even that, but, like, think about airbending, but not airbending itself. Let's say I created a small tornado, Winds moving 100 plus miles an hour. I created an EF5 tornado. That means any projectile that's caught up in that wind gust basically becomes a bullet. Basically. That I can swing in any direction. So that's any earth, any loose pieces of wood, any weapons, anything that I can pick up with air becomes a whim to my bending abilities because I can control the air and the force in which that object impacts you. That's what I was saying earlier about being able to make yourself stronger because you could do that with your own fist too. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. When, all right. Something like that. Maybe I'll buy that a little bit. Yeah. Um. And with that said, so 
elements is not like the other. One of these elements is within the other. And I say that because, like you said earlier in the water segment, what is water made of? Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, right? H2O? Yeah, hydrogen, one part oxygen. If I'm a skilled enough master at airbending, what's stopping me from separating the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules in water and converting them back into air? Or combining hydrogen and oxygen once you figure out how to do that, you know, grab particular air molecules and create water. That's what I feel like, because um, we're finna get into this next segment, um, which is mixed bending, but I feel like water and air benders have a lot in common, not only with just how their element is, but we measure air in fluid physics. We measure air in fluid. Air moves through the atmosphere as a fluid. Um, when you look at the basic martial arts stances and poses and how air and water benders do, like air and water benders are similar. Like, you know, you can evade and avoid with air uh, just as well as you can with water. You can, can make your offense into your defense with air just as much as you can with water. Um, just with how they are, I think, like earth and just ice benders. If you just manipulate ice, you would bend ice in the way of a water slash earth bender, not just as a straightforward water bender. Bending, um, you know, that's worth earth and water mixed together. You as a water bender or as an earth bender can bend both. So let's get into mixed bending. That includes lava bending, cloud bending. A lot of the subsets of bending kind of can be perceived as mixed bending that either one elemental bender can do it or another person from a different element can do it. And I'm going to give the example of lava bending. Of Korra, it's explicitly said that earthbenders become lava benders. But when you go back to the last Avatar and you only see Avatars bending lava in that series, it seems like it's more of a fire-bending ability with how they do it. And then when you break it down even further, let's take Bolin. So how is Bolin uh, a lava bender? Obviously, his ancestry, his father, uh, was it his father was an earthbender and his mother was a firebender or something like that? Yeah, they had um, mixed ancestry. Right, so they had mixed ancestry. Mako is just a firebender. Um, but Bolin can now lava bend, which, what is lava? Just liquid, melted, hot earth, right? Yeah, but I'm not sure if that's like a result of mixed heritage or just who Bolin just turned out to be. Because, I mean, when it comes to bending, it part of it was not a matter of who or who you're not born to. I mean, we've seen it many times in the series where non-benders give birth to bending children and vice versa. I mean, well, that, I mean before. that can be explained with dormant and recessive genes. Like, uh, with that said, look at harmonic convergence and how after harmonic convergence, the world was introduced to all these new airbenders. Those airbenders didn't just come from anywhere. Those are the descendants of the last surviving airbenders who either went into hiding and had to hide their airbending and be disconnected from their culture, which essentially caused them to lose their airbending or have a weaker airbending. And then from there, the airbending trait just genetically became recessive until resurgence through harmonic convergence. 
which are the descendants of airbenders, if you had a dormant airbending trait in your genetic line, you are now an airbender because that ability has been unlocked and awakened because of harmonic convergence. Uh, look at Boomy, Aang's first natural born son who was born a non bender, but after harmonic convergence is an airbender. But then there's Opal who was born to earthbenders. Because she was born to earthbenders doesn't mean airbending isn't in their ancestry. Like, um, look at uh, after Avatar Roku died and you get the start of the Hundred Years War and you get the, aver uh, the airbender genocide. I would imagine a lot of airbenders fled to the Earth Kingdom, the Water Tribes and the Fire Nation, to seek refuge, to hide so they can survive. Thus, why a lot of the in Legend of Korra, you had a lot of the Earth uh, Kingdom citizens become airbenders versus Water Tribe and Fire Nation people, acolytes for that matter. What I'm saying is, like, ultimately, like, there's no like definitive proof that is genetics or dominant or recessive genes involved in it. It's just what it turns out to be, in as per the series, because there's no real rhyme or reason for, especially since benders seem to be the majority in the world. They're the majority. I would say, because the whole series, both in the last Airbender and Core, is always about balance and the Avatar having to bring balance to the world. Either series, I imagine that it has to be a 50-50 even split between benders of all nations and non-benders, period. The um, Equalist movement in season one of Legend of Korra, there are a lot of non-benders there for Republic City to be filled with benders from all four nations. Well, three nations. <laughs> but No, I count the airbenders like it was just five people, but I count them five people. They were in Republic City on, airbender, on Avatar Ang Island or whatever it's called. Uh, I suppose, I suppose. I mean, because they were just really on Air Temple Island chilling. They're like they represent like a nation. If that nation consists of you, your wife, and your three now four kids, and all y'all are airbenders minus your wife, you are that nation. You are. He even he said it. He, yeah, he's Avatar Aang's son, and Avatar Aang instilled on him the hopes and dreams and wishes of the new airbending nation. But he himself is Tenzin, and he's the first airbending master in a generation or two, depending on how you want to count it. Um, I count them as Arab nation, even though they were just five people or four people. Like a nation, per se. I think we're getting caught up on thing here. Right, um, right, right. Minor things. Let's go back to mixed bending. Um, theorize that an earthbender and a firebender can both bend lava just in different ways. Like how I theorize a waterbender and an earthbender can bend mud, but just in different ways. Uh, airbender and a waterbender can bend clouds just in different ways, but they're still bending the same thing. They're still bending clouds. Um, they're still bending lava or magma. They're still doing this and that because it's mixed bending. It's combining one or more of the elements to create a new thing that can now be manipulated by bending one of those elements within that new thing. I can't remember. I got nothing to add to that. You pretty much nailed it. Like, look at glass bending. What is glass? But sand, right? Glass, you know, sand, you make glass from sand. 
you make glass by superheating the sand into different layers and it coagulates and through the heat process creates glass. So that makes sense to me that an earthbender who can bend sand should also be able to bend glass. It makes sense to me that a waterbender who can also water from the air can also bend plants. It makes sense to me that an earthbender can also bend some plants because earth is in those plants, like how there's earth within us human beings. We have carbon and calcium and potassium and all these earth rich minerals within our own body they also exist in plants so why can't an earth bender also bend plants as well as a water bender combustion bending combustion bending is nothing but combining air and fire bending together when you think about it yeah i guess my my question for all that is like considering that it's coming of mixed ancestry well mixed mixed source not ancestry but a mixed source where are these coming from the Iroh said something in the series about like the nations pulling from each other and how he created lightning bending from watching waterbenders. He created lightning bending from watching waterbenders. He learned how to redirect lightning by watching waterbenders. And well, to my belief behind what you just said, um, behind what you just said is this. Really? Yeah, you never, have you read the, the graphic novels? Yeah, in Avatar Kyoshi's story, um, in the story of Kyoshi novels, um, her mother is an airbender who defected from the air nation. And because of that, her airbending became significantly weaker the longer she went without being connected to the air nation. The earth man and earthbender had a baby, you get Kyoshi. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't read the books, but I did know that. Because that's where Kyoshi gets the fans from. Her war fans come from um, her looking to her mother's possessions and seeing those fans. It's even said, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but it's said that those war fans helped Kyoshi with her airbending because Kyoshi's element she had difficulty with was airbending. The element that's most opposite to their personality. Right, that's the legend of Korra belief, but the last airbender belief is the Avatar is going to have an issue learning the element opposite of their own element. So since Kyoshi is an earthbender, air would be her natural, you know, stopping point, blockage thing, because it's so opposite of her natural element. Right, which makes um, sense, you know. Which, and I guess in the case of Kyoshi makes sense, but in the case of Korra, it doesn't because she was like, oh, I can't airbend all this and that. And I'm like, well, you should be able to not firebend because of that, not airbend, but whatever. You know, you got to mix it up or whatever. Some bullshit they did in Korra. Yeah, it makes more sense. To admit it, it does make more sense because you get to mix it up. The same airbending avatar won't have the same hang up on earthbending like how Aang did. I get that, but it's what you already created years prior in the first series with those three seasons. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I just prefer I just prefer it like the way that it was in core because it because bending is all about connection, spirituality, and being who you just who you are as a person. All that first, then your skill level. Being and also it also ties in with 
Aang. I don't know how they explained it in the last Airbender, but it also ties in with Aang because to be sturdy, rigid, like like rigid and and firm in, and firm in your stance. And Aang was anything but. I agree. I agree. The Legend of Korra's, uh when you apply that to his own story and Aang's story, it makes perfect sense. Aang was an airbender. He believed in the airbending ways. So, of course, when he went to go learn earthbending, he had difficulties with it. It makes sense in that way. But all I'm saying is they still went against and retconned what they have already established that we already believed up until they reiterated in The Legend of Korra. There's a lot of things that they changed from The Last Airbender to The Legend of Korra that they just retconned, like the whole origin of bending. You know, in The Last Avatar or The Last Airbender, you were taught that bending comes from the the animals. It came from the badger moles who did earth bending, the moon who taught water bending, the dragons who taught fire bending, and um, I'm missing one themselves at that point i feel like it bending became more of a genetic thing that the lion turtles they like hey humans get off my back we're not gonna protect y'all no more but we're gonna give all y'all bending abilities that we have and then we're gonna bounce and then from there y'all on your own if you have kids and they can bend cool if they don't cool you gotta learn to deal with it yeah yeah, that, that's how that went. <laughs> but I'm going to add this little caveat to it because we mentioned about the genetics of bending a little bit. Now, in both series, they make it clear that bending, regardless of what element it is, it has a physical side and a spiritual side. And I'm going to use this to caveat to the next segment, too. Um, all airbenders or all air nomads were airbenders up until the air genocide, uh, airbender genocide by the Fire Nation. But every person that was born into the Air Nation was a bender because of their spiritual prowess. So indicate that earthbenders are the most least spiritual, and I guess firebenders too, but earth and firebenders are the most least spiritual and waterbenders between both series were in the processes of losing their spirituality altogether. So hmm. bending is both a physical thing like science and a spiritual thing like a belief. If you believe in it, you can do it. Like look at we certain abilities we haven't talked about yet, but look at the abilities Janor gained during harmonic convergence, astral projection, teleporting, um, ex machina stuff. Um, I don't know. She has some abilities I just can't quite Bending, when you just think of it in the scientific aspect. Um, I mean, and, no, go ahead. Yeah, but we established, but it was established even before Harmonic Convergence that Janor had spiritual abilities that they hadn't previously explored, and that that's an aspect of airbending. True. Being part of that, like we, we talked about earlier, how firebending and firebenders are tied to their passion or their rage. Um, airbending is about spirituality and being connected. Nora being as connected as she was, she was able to do that. Yes. What if all of the elements were as spiritually connected as airbenders were? What type of abilities could we possibly see from water, earth, and firebenders on the spiritual side? And 
before you answer, I'll give you some examples. So I think off the rip, healing is a spiritual water ability. I was getting ready to say that. Okay, so we agree there. Uh, yeah. Two, in the Legend of Korra, and I already mentioned this, where the fire sages had Korra on the table. She had amnesia, and they like wrapped fire around their hands and read her aura. That's a fire spiritual ability, being able to read aura senses and things. Yep. And an earth spiritual ability would be, uh, what's his name? Yahweh, uh, the the security dude in Zalfu, who ended up being working with the Red Lotus. He was an earth-bending, metal-bending spiritual guide who can seek truth in people. And I think that's a spiritual uh, ability that an earthbender can have if they're more open and more spiritual. Yeah. So there are aspects out there. But, I mean, ultimately it's still not the same, but there are aspects out there. I would say that each um, each element that we've just previously just discussed um, it's like they've got a foot in the pool of spirituality, but it's not all the way in there like airbending is. Right. And I guess it would be kind of hard to speculate on what a spiritual fire, earth, and waterbender could really do on that same level of a spiritual airbender. Because, like, airbender, like, again, Janora was teleporting, astral projection, uh, sensing other people's auras and emotions and stuff. Like, literally communing and can see spirits, even though in um, The Last Airbender, there's a scene where uh, Aang is on Fang's back and going into the spirit world, and, and Iroh can see them. Just in the physical world, he can see two spirits going into the spirit world. Right. Um, so I think with, when it comes to spirituality, the sky's the limit with what you can do. That firebenders can't you know, see into the future if they're more spiritual by just looking into the flames, like how uh, people have done in our own reality. Um, who's to say that an earthbender won't be able to commune with those that have transitioned from the material world to the spirit world? Because obviously, if you're a dead body, you're in the earth, and an earthbender will be able to connect to the residual spirit of that deceased, right? I think, you know, that's crazy. I think that's crazy. <laughs> uh, it's worth exploring. Um, a little deeper. What about waterbenders? Waterbenders obviously can bloodbend, but on a more spiritual sense, what if they can life bend? What if they can, you know, we've seen a bloodbender take away bending. Can waterbenders who can bloodbend give and unlock bending abilities to people? I'm not sure. About that, I mean, but if you take a look at healing, healing literally has to do with affecting one's chakra. You're literally interacting with somebody's chakra. That's pretty spiritual. It's pretty spiritual. Oh, and we forgot about spirit bending in the Legend of Korra. Um, um, Udalok showed Korra how to dispel spirits by spirit bending water tubes in the hexadagonal shape. Hexadagonal shape. And dispelling spirits. What is that? We didn't even get into spirit and energy bending, which I believe are similar and yet separate bending abilities that only certain people can do. I think energy bending is its own thing. But I wouldn't say that that's spirit bending. I would say that's more spirit purification. 
can earth, air, and firebenders do that too with their respective element and dispel spirits or evil spirits? Honestly, I don't know, but honestly, I don't see, I can't see earthbenders doing that. If a waterbender, my thing is, if a waterbender can dispel a spirit, uh, an evil spirit, like how Korra did um, in season two, every bending element should be able to do that in their own way. Um, just with their own movements and things, with their own element. No, I don't. I don't know. I feel like when it comes to spirituality, that's something that's a well that we didn't get a chance to explore, so we don't know. Because we didn't even know that could even was even a thing until we saw it. Because <laughs> we well, didn't even have well, dealings with spirits, except for a couple of times in the last Airbender. Really, one time uh, when Aang goes up against Haybai in that two-parter, and Sokka gets captured and goes to the spirit world and comes back. That's pretty much the time I'm talking about. Right. Like we don't get much in the way of spirit in a spiritual bending, or a spirit spirits in the net real world prior to that interaction. In right. Of course. Right. So there are there is one thing we get from Aang series that's completely different from Korra series. On why I say energy and spirit being there are kind of one and the same. So in the finale with Ozai, um, before Angle fights Ozai, the lion turtle gives Aang the ability to energy bend, more specifically the ability to take away Ozai's bending. When we see that, we don't know that that's what the lion turtle is giving Aang. He just says, in the days before the elements, we bent the energy within ourselves. What the fuck does that mean? That Ozai's aura overtakes Aang almost, and that one little bit of blue light shines from his eye, almost is extinguished, and then it goes out, and blue encompasses everything, and Ozai, and then, you know, Ozai is defeated because his bendings got taken away, and then we go into Legend of Korra, and there we learn that that same energy bending we learn is now spiritual energy bending, I guess, and things you can do with that. Um, maybe it's just the, the shitty writing between the two series um, and how they just don't 100% connect. When you already had a developed, fully realized world and a magical system set in place, and then you retcon some of that, you get some of these crossovers where things don't quite mix, and we're just trying to figure out how they mix together. Right. Um, oh. I, you're right, I don't know, but I do think every element has its form of water spirit bending that Korra did that dispel evil spirits in some shape, way, form, or fashion or can do things like that. And also that every element has its own level of spiritual bending, like how the airbenders do. It's just elements are far less spiritual than, than airbenders ever will be. And it seems like only pure airbenders would like that's from Aang's bloodline would be able to do that type of airbending. Like it. It's like we that's that goes I think that goes back to skill in connection that we mentioned earlier. Particular aspect. True. They do make it where like real bending masters and prodigies are kind of like a dime a dozen in the things that they do. But, I mean, again, just think about all the things with everything we talked about. We haven't even gotten to, like, the Avatar's abilities because there's stuff the Avatar can do that nobody else can just do. Like, both Aang and Korra in their respective series 
uh, went into the Avatar state and touched the vines in the swamp and was able to just locate anybody on the planet. Well, yeah, the Avatar could just do whatever. I think we both know that. Um, <laughs> right. Or let, let's not even talk about the crap that Korra did after she uh, was broken free of Rava's connection to the Avatar um, abilities and was just herself fighting Udavatu. Let's not get into that. Yeah, that's not. Because <laughs> um, I don't even want to, like, how do you, where, with everything we talked about, where do we put huge spiritual energy beings? Goes into the Ex Machina category. I think that goes into the Dragon Ball Z category of bending. Yep. Like, there's I two instances in The Legend of Korra where they shoot giant spirit beams at stuff. In season two and season four, and it's just like we just have to accept that garbage. Yeah. Um, but there is something I wanted to bring up. Wait, go ahead. I said that's just about all we can really say about it. Is just Avatar, Avatar. Well, there's one more thing I want to bring up when it comes to abilities that only the Avatar can do. Um, and I can't even really theorize about this because it's just kind of one of those offhanded comments that was mentioned, but we never really saw any implementations of. It is said by Rava that the Avatar is most powerful when they are in the spiritual world, rather they're in spirit form or they're physically in the spiritual world. I want to see that. Show me how more powerful the Avatar is without bending any of the elements, how more powerful the Avatar can be in spirit and physical form in the spiritual world. I want to see more of that. Well, we were seeing that just Korra's presence and state of mind radiated to the spirits around her and their mood and how they reacted and how she was able to literally warp the reality of the spirit world just by believing that she could. So with that said, with that very thing said, how come she didn't do that when she was asking for the spirits help in season four against Kovira to protect Republic City? Manipulate the spirits' emotional state to want them to come out and help you protect uh, Republic City. But all the spirits are like, no, nah, we don't get involved in the human shit, so we out. I'm not sure. Maybe because like her intentions were malicious, and I'm not sure if she can manipulate the spirits' free will. It affects their mood and how they and how and their their form based on her emotional state, but I don't think that she can manipulate their free will. I'm just saying, I don't know. It just seems like they only said that to have the spirits not be a part of the finale and not make it like that. I guess it would have kind of messed up the power scaling a little bit for the inner core. Did you read the comics, the post-core comics? No, I haven't because I'm just pissed. No, no. Not- All right, so tell me, I haven't, I haven't read, I've read everything up until the end of Chorus. So any post, uh, Chorusami, I don't know anything about. Oh, yeah, they went to the portal. They were on their vacation. The spirits were basically like, "Nah, bro." <laughs> you're like, "I don't, I know you're here on vacation. We know you're the Avatar, but we need you to dip out. We are not happy with you. Mm. You're here making random portals and." We we didn't follow you to this point. We've been cool with everything you've been doing to this point, but nah, bro. We need you to chill out. I'm gonna have to look into that. Um, because I literally just stopped. Like I was like, I, I'm just just show me the next avatar now. Show me the earthbending avatar now. 
just want to do that. I mean, they, I know they want to do that next. I saw somebody doing something about the earth bending um, avatar and how Korra died like in her early 30s, saving the world from an explosion or something like that. Oh, I know what you're talking about the legend of Genji or the tale of Genji or something like yeah. that. I think I've saw like the first couple of minutes, but I haven't sat down and watched. I'm probably watch it after this. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if like like that's Canada, that's the creators, or that's somebody else. I didn't look that. I think that's fan made. I think that's 100 fan made. But it looked interesting enough and real enough to seem like it's part of the original series. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, so we're almost at the end of this podcast. Um, let me just transition to this. What's some type of bending or something that you wish that they that the series has alluded to or made us theorize about that a bender could do? What's something you wish a bender could do that you haven't seen so far in either series? In either series, something completely out of the water. Yeah. I would like to see physical augmentation, physical adaptability to their elements. Like earthbenders, maybe like tougher skin. Uh, Waterbenders, maybe like adaption to water survival. Firebenders, maybe like they're immune to their own flames, I believe. There's they would have to be. I believe they're immune to their own flames. But not other firebenders' flames, as right. you know, Zuko's plain example of that, or not even that, but because of how dangerous firebending is, you're taught to even with your own fire to like use it in a way that doesn't burn you. So you also learn to avoid fire at all costs because it's hot. Yeah. Also, um, in the case of airbenders, um, physical adaptation in the form of maybe um, hollow bones. Like a bird? Like birds? Yeah. Or... That they can fly? Maybe. I don't think they need hollow bones to fly. Like, you know, I get where you're going with that logic, and I appreciate that. I'm just I'm just throwing things out there. Gotcha. I, that would be interesting. I think that would be interesting. Myself the same question, and I'm going to start with the airbenders, and I want to see more of that spiritual bending stuff that we talked about. Like, obviously, Janora only touch the surface of and even to a lesser extent the here they only touch the surface of what airbenders can do i think there's so much more airbenders can do that we haven't even theorized in this in this episode um i, I think that with all of the elements but more so airbending right um i i personally like i said want to see lasers from firebenders i just think that's too impractical for them to not do like if you can shoot combustion explosions from your mind you should be able to shoot lasers from your eyes that's all i'm saying i would be i think i would like it more if you're able to like do like fire like concussive blast from like your hands and your feet or something with concentrated effort of course so like instead of shooting like out of your third eye you're shooting those same combustion man beams out of your hands and feet well, more so, yeah, maybe like more so palms. Okay, okay. Palms. Um, Still with concentrated effort. Okay. Um, I want to see firebenders discover nuclear power because that's the next step in that element, I believe. Like if you heat something up hot enough, it becomes nuclear. 
if you heat something up bright enough, it becomes an EMP. So I think seeing more with firebenders and them being able to deal with the electromagnetic spectrum of things and being able to manipulate more electricity and like instead of generating high power lightning, maybe they can just conduct electricity. Um, a, a lesser lesser voltage form of lightning. Um, maybe water benders. Well, water benders are already OP, and I think they basically cover everything you can do with water bending. Um, I can't really think. They have soup bending, right? They feed Oppo. Katara feeds Oppo by bending soup. Um, even in the puppeteer, Hama bends soup into their bowls. So I'm like, yeah, if you can bend any liquid, you can literally bend any liquid. Just leave it at that. So there's not really much we can see from water benders, but everybody else got some catching up to do. That's true. I, and I appreciated that in the series that we were able to see like bending and like like just regular just living life. Not a battle, not a struggle, just minding your own business. I think that's what I like about the Legend of Korra a lot that goes underappreciated is that the evolution of daily bending applications in everyday life in Republic City. And I can't wait for them to get to the next Avatar, whether it's 30 years after the Legend of, uh, the Legend of Korra or 110 years. I want to see the Avatar in today's society with today's problems with computers and cell phones and tablets. What's that earthbending avatar going to do? What's that world like? What are those benders doing? How are they doing everyday applications of, of bending? Like, you know, it, by the end of Korra, they came up with airplanes. Um, you know, between season two and season four, they had fully-fledged airplanes. Um, you know, war balloons, tanks, battleships. Uh, it looked like every nation but the Air Nation had industrialized. The Earth Kingdom and the Water Tribes had in industries and factories and things. So show me what bending's like in today's day and age where computer chips have both Earth and water in them to some degree or whatever. Or because things create electricity now, firebenders now have new applications of how to use their abilities. Yeah. I think ultimately, like, all of those elements in order to advance forward like that, they ultimately need each other. True, which is something we didn't even get into. And I guess that's just a whole nother episode. But uh, it is said in both series that the four elements are the same side of the same coin. That's just true. different segments of it. So I let's see more of how each now that all the nations are mixing together in Republic City and I guess in the Earth Kingdom in general, let's see more of how those benders who are around all of the other three elements and can pick up things use their bending now um, that the world is more open and it's a global society and people, and people move freely from nation to nation. You pick up on things. So like I have like in my mind, I assume fire, air, and water benders create a colony together and they create like the storm islands where they figure out how to manipulate the weather because they use their elements together to bend the atmosphere to create storms and hurricanes. Like you have air benders providing the air, water benders uh, evaporating and descending water. And you have fire benders creating the necessary heat and pressure to create different uh, 
atmospheric things in the in different weather phenomena. I want to see earthbenders create huge earthquakes. That's one thing I haven't seen earthbenders do is create earthquakes. Uh, is created seismic events. like Seismic events on a local level, but give me like the Fire Nation, for example. That whole archipelago of islands that they exist on is nothing but volcanoes, so they have to do with earthquakes and can an earthbender stop an earthquake created by the earth that they're standing on? Uh, I th that might make them OP. I can see maybe like an avatar doing that. Those who didn't listen to however long this podcast is, let's just recap the episode uh, to all of the followers that will eventually listen to me. Uh, what did we talk about today, James? We talked about bending, it's different applications, um, theoretical science behind them, and their spiritual aspects of their spirituality. Some aspects of the spirituality, because I think that's kind of more of a vague topic that we can't really get into until we see more from this universe. Um, just off the top of your head, top three moments from both series are from all of the Avatar universe, regardless of the medium. Top three moments. Top three moments? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, definitely one of them is finding out how much of a badass Avatar Kyrick uh, um, is. I, oh, you're talking about uh, in his... I, I somewhere, I think in the Kyoshi books, where they talk about him and all the stuff he did in the spirit world. And yeah, like, and how everybody thought he was lazy and... and right. Whole time, Bruz is on a mission. Okay. This man out here fighting spirits and trying to trying to get at Ko and the effort and what he was doing ultimately is why he died young and being a badass. That's awesome. <coughs> Number two moments. Um Aang versus Ozai. For sure. Cause well, I mean, that's just the the culmination of like a hundred year war and a and three seasons of one of the best TV shows ever. And I give people give Cora a lot of flack, and this is gonna like a low key one, but given who she is and how her character is, um, number three for me is after harmonic convergence and the airbenders were back, and she talked dude down from that bridge when he was like he was on the airbender that was on the bridge. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm like, that how is, is this your top three moment of everything. That is, that is a favorite moment of mine because that is completely opposite of the core that we met when we first when we first met. Core was hard-headed, stubborn, abrasive, forceful, wasn't gentle at all. And her first act, well, her well, she was a fully realized avatar from the previous season. Um, but one of her first acts is she talks somebody, she talks to somebody, she goes for understanding. She she levels and reasons with him and talks him down. And it was his choice that she didn't force him, she didn't make him. She got him to calm down and got him to listen, and she pulled him around to the side. And I think that's a it's a character moment I think that goes overlooked, and I really appreciate it on a personal level. Hogwash. 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 What? How was that hogwash? Core is on your top three. Like, oh, she, she, first of all, that scene you're talking about when it happens, because it's like the beginning of season two or beginning of season three. I can't remember, but it's one of those. Three. Um, 
Okay, it's beginning of season three. So it's after Harmonic Convergence and all this, and it's right before the new airbenders come up and the vines with Republic City and all that stuff. Um, I That's bad writing by the How writers. That bad writing? The limitations that they had on the season because of Nickelodeon. That would have not had to happen at that point in her journey of as the Avatar. Why wouldn't it? Because one, she still like even after that moment, she still had moments where she was pig-headed and stubborn and wouldn't listen and was the old core from the first two seasons. Like so, when? Okay, like anything versus Zaheer. What is that? No, no, no. She gave herself over to Zaheer. The, yeah, like, during their second, during their second point, interaction, at a point when it was kind of like this was, you know, she did it after he killed the Earth Queen. I mean, but that last time they interacted after that, yeah, trying to give herself over to but, serve, no, uh, but if that's the case, if yeah. she's newly aimed version of the Avatar, she would have gave herself up when they came to kidnap her in Zafu. Well, I mean, that was duplicious. First of all, what happened with them? That was a whole kidnapping. That was a whole kidnapping. Okay. And she okay. wanted to talk and she wanted to talk and try and stop him. She wasn't trying to fight. Cora after season two really leveled out. Oh, so in really? season three, I feel like she I feel like she was at her best in season three. I will agree. I, I do think Cora's her best in season three, but I don't think she leveled out until halfway through season four after she got the poison she, out of her. She wasn't irrational. She wasn't super brash. I mean, was she still like hot-headed in some respects, sure. That's just who she is as a person. But compared to where she started from, like, that was growth all the way. That was growth. That moment was, that moment just was a moment that, that showed me that Korra was a feel, a fully realized avatar. Like, she was chill. She didn't just rely on her powers because she easily could have just grabbed dude and just pulled him down and be like, all right, now chill out. And a younger her would have done that. But she opted to talk, reach understanding, calm him down, and help him down, but of his own choice. That's just a weird thing to have in your top three. I'm going to just leave it at that because um, I don't agree with I'm a character that guy. part of your top three. I'm a character guy. And I felt I'm a, I like growth. I like character development. I like progression or regression based on logical things. And Cora from the first to the third season had grown. And that was a moment that displayed her growth. I appreciated that. I don't agree with the timing of that moment. Cause they're like, she just regresses after that. If that's the case, she does genuinely regress and then works her way back up to that moment. But I'm gonna let you have that. Cause this, we're clearly getting into, this is going to be another episode topic of level of discussion. I'm just giving you my three, and we're going to end the podcast. Um, my number one favorite moment of either series has to be Zaheer versus Tenzin. Number one, hands down. Is it the best fight in the entire series? It's not. But is it the most deserved? Is it the most wanted to see? Is it, like, the most thrilling? I think so. You have a good airbender versus a good master airbender versus the villain of the season uh, in Zaheer, who, you know, even though he's not a master, he's also not a scrub in airbending and does give Tenzin a run for his money for a hot second. 
until he had to cheat and bring in the rest of the Red Lotus um, to help finish off Tenzin. But prior to that, one of the best fights I've seen is with airbending. I've been wanting to see airbenders not hold back. And you, this one, you get two airbenders not hold back. My second favorite moment from the entire series is during the Ozai Aang fight, but it's not the Ozai Aang fight. It's the Katara versus uh Katara versus uh and Zuko versus uh Azula fight. Um you get Zuko and Yeah, right, yeah. That yeah Zuko and Azula uh in the Agni Kai, and then Azula does the lightning and Zuko redirects it, but he takes a hit and then Katara steps in and Katara being all this water mastery and being cunning and being the mother figure and Azula being crazy and losing her shit and just going ham and Katara just like, hey, I'm going to get the upper hand and just some simple stuff. That was amazing. That was the better fight uh, in Aang's finale. Hands down, it was the better fight. Like, yeah, it's cool seeing Aang master all the elements and do all this and that, hit the Avatar State, defeat the big bad from all three seasons. But it was something satisfying about seeing Azula lose her shit and then lose the biggest fight in her life and then cry and, like, just ball out crying. She's just there chained up crying at the end because she just lost and she don't know what to do. It's something about that just speaks volumes. I mean, you're right. I mean, dang, that's – yeah, that should have been in my top three. Like, that – that because, I mean, again, I'm a growth guy. I'm a character guy. And the way that Zuko was able to beat Azula, basically doing the bare minimum, while Azula was going all out, creating big waves of fire. And you see Zuko just just using precision with his strikes. Right. And and kind of defense, kind of letting her tire out, which is a callback to season one about how firebenders and how they have to manage their stamina. And Zuko had problems earlier against Zhao in season one. And you see Zuko standing in there, grown, like fully developed, going at Azula, who's, like you said, lost her shit. And she's just trying hard to do everything, which is not like her, which shows where she's at. And Zuko's calm and he's in a good place. And also, it shows, uh, like you said, growth in characters. It shows that Zuko found another source to bend his fire from outside of anger. It shows the limits of where only getting your fire bending source from anger limits you in the case of Azula. Um, and it, it was just a great ending to three characters' arc in just one moment. Um, and we got like four minutes to go, so I'm going to give you my third way, then we're just going to end the podcast. Um, this is probably going to be another episode, so just stay tuned to that. My third, and this is a Korra moment, but my third favorite all-time moment from the entire series is baby three, four-year-old Korra coming out and like, I'm the Avatar. You got the, the sages are coming to see if she's the Avatar. And she just come out of nowhere, earth fire and water bending. I think that was a great um, introduction to her as a character and I just feel like it didn't leave up to the hype but I love that moment a lot because it's just cute and it's fun and it's whimsical and it was clearly something we have been seeing from this series uh, and a full, almost fully realized Avatar at such a young age which lets you know that 
Cora is going to be a very powerful avatar. I think she's the first good avatar that seems to be said, but she's going to be powerful nonetheless. I think it was the first avatar to do that. I would say so. Yeah, we don't have any other instances. I think maybe Kyoshi. No, we have instances. Kyoshi didn't. I think Kyoshi was airbending at first. I think so too. I don't think because she wasn't that good at earthbending. But we got two minutes left. Um. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Where can people find you? Like I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, you can find me on jbversustheworld.com. That's my central hub. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and um, YouTube at jbversustheworld. And you can find me on Twitter at jbvtheworld because versus is just too long for Twitter. All right. And I'm Mark. From, and this has been episode one of Blurcast. I'm going to get into why I called it Blurcast maybe in another episode. But this has been Blurcast. Um, Mahalo.